Uh, Darren alluded to the fact of how many were just come to prayer meeting this morning, kind of distracted, burdened, um, busy. And I just, just know my time of worship this morning was busy. Maybe you saw just my kids were all around. I need to calm my heart, so let's pray. Father, I thank you that God, all these songs that we have sung are so appropriate to my message this morning. Lord, that you are a mighty fortress, is our God, a bulwark never failing. God, that we can rest and trust in you, our righteousness, our strength, our stronghold, our refuge, and our fortress. Father, I thank you that you are the, the rock of ages, the cleft for me. Let me hide myself. In thee. Uh, I just even know that one of those stanzas says that if, if, if my tears would never cease flowing or my zeal no respite know, all for sin could not atone save for Christ and Christ alone. We, we do thank you, O Lord, that in Jesus Christ we are, are made whole and that we can find refuge and strength and trust in Him. And as Psalm 62 says, my soul finds rest in God alone, the rock of my salvation. God is my stronghold, my fortress, and I shall not be shaken. Oh God, in You we do place our trust. I pray for the anxious souls this morning. I pray that I might use Your Word to direct them to You and to the fountain of Your grace. God, where true healing comes, and where we can rest secure and firm uh, to face the trials and the difficulties, the sorrows and hardships of life. And so I pray, O oh Lord, that you would, would help us with that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can open your Bible to Psalm 125 this morning. It's a great psalm of ascent. As you're turning there, I, I want to just say that next to, the Bible, next to the Bible, I'm confident that no other literature has helped Christian people more than Christian biography. Reading of the lives of the saints who have gone before us as a way of, of helping us to remain faithful to the Lord. Because when you, you read the hardships of those who have gone before us, our hardships suddenly don't look so hard as we gain perspective. When you read of the trials that they faced and how they conquered went through, you yourself can gain confidence that if they went through those trials, well, well, I can too with the help of the Lord. When you see the persecution that they endured, all of a sudden our life doesn't look so difficult. When you read of their failures and their weaknesses, and some biographies tell of failures and weaknesses, not all of them, Good ones do, though, to show that the saints of old weren't perfect people. When you read of their weaknesses, you're encouraged that you're not the only one who's weak and has failings as well. And when you see how the Lord sustained them in their times of trial, you, you can grow to believe, you can grow in your belief that God can help you in times of your trial as well. And, and there are really two ways that Christian biography helps to encourage us. One is the encouragement of just seeing the lives that they led and, and saying, if they can remain true, well, well so can I. And, and on the, the other side of that, there's an encouragement in God Himself. If God has strengthened them and used them so mightily, then certainly God can strengthen me and use me so mightily. And, and it works a little bit like this. Like, you read about Polycarp. Any of you know about Polycarp? Who knows about Polycarp? Right? All we know is just a little bit about Polycarp. He was discipled by the Apostle John himself. The time of the Roman persecution was commanded to burn incense to the Roman emperor but when threatened with martyrdom, if he refused, here's what Polycarp says. He says, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and Savior? Bring forth what you will. And he was promptly burned at the stake. He remained true to the Lord and found that for 86 years, God was faithful. And who wasn't encouraged by that story? Or who isn't encouraged by Adoniram Judson, who left America in 1812 to bring the gospel to Burma, modern-day Myanmar? He labored in Burma for 37 years, coming home only once 
to get a wife, I believe, to try to try to heal his wife. As I remember, she died, buried her at sea. He came home, found a wife and went back to Burma. His hardships were many. He labored for seven years before anyone professed faith in Christ and was baptized. He had to marry three times because his first two wives died of hardship on the mission field. He was falsely accused at one point of being a British spy and endured untold hardships in prison. But God blessed his labor. When he died, the Bible was translated. There were a hundred churches in Burma and over 8,000 believers. And who can't be encouraged by the story of Adoniram Judson? Who isn't encouraged by Augustine, who, who turned from a life of sexual sin to become one of the greatest intellectual church fathers and devotional church fathers as well? Who isn't encouraged by Martin Luther, who boldly stood against the errors of all the Roman Catholic Church? Who isn't encouraged by the Moravians, whom call, whose calm in the storm is what convicted John Wesley that he didn't believe and trust the Lord as he thought he did? And who can't be encouraged by the thousands of nonconformist ministers who rejected in 1662 for not conforming to the Church of England, but standing on the Word of God alone? Who can't but be encouraged by Richard Baxter, who so gave himself to, to ministering and shepherding the, the people of his churches? He said this, When I came to Kidderminster, there was only one family in a whole street that worshipped God and called upon His name, and when I left, there were some streets where not a family did not do so. And who can't be encouraged by hearing the story of John Newton, a former slave trader who came to know the amazing grace of Christ, went on to be a great pastor and hymn writer. Or who can't help to be encouraged by the itinerant Methodist preacher? Nobody knows who this man was who preached that sermon on Isaiah. Look to the Lord and be saved all the ends of the earth and converted was the means through which God converted Charles Spurgeon to become a great, greatest preacher probably who ever lived. And who can't be but encouraged by Fanny Crosby, who was blind by a physician's error as an infant, but encouraged many with her gospel hymnody. Who can't but be encouraged by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who opposed the Nazi regime in Germany and eventually was hanged. Or, or by Richard Wormbrand, who suffered greatly at the, in a Romanian prison for years, he came to found Voice of the Martyrs and raised the awareness of the persecuted church to the world. Or who can't be encouraged by Jim Elliott, who gave his life to reach out to the Wadrani Indians in Ecuador with the gospel. Or, or his wife, who then later went to that same group of people and brought the gospel and seeing revival and so many re converted. Or, or even modern day, what about Johnny Erickson Tata, 1967, had a diving accident, paralyzed, has served the Lord greatly in a wheelchair ever since. I mean, these are just a few of literally thousands of stories of people that can be tell, told. Those have gone before us and served the Lord in great way, and some through trial, some to martyrdom. And some served the Lord just a few years, and some served for decades. Some in their homeland, some in foreign lands, some in writing, some in serving, some in ushering in great movements of God, others in profoundly affected only a few. Some will become famous, and others of whom the world will never know. And here's the good news. You can read about them if you wish. There's lots of Christian biography out there. If you're looking for a biography to read, just talk to me. And you can hear about how the saints have lived before us and, and uh, have an impact upon your life. The Bible first, I believe Christian biography second in terms of making an impact on people. Well, this morning as we come to Psalm 125, we're not going to read of the saints of old who did great things, have gone before us. But here's what we're going to see. We're going to see the foundation and the bedrock of what it is that they believed and how it is that they actually endured through their lives. Psalm 125 says that the prescript there, the, the preamble, the, the heading, the ascription, a song of ascents. There are 15 of these psalms, beginning in Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. And for five weeks, we've been studying these psalms, not in order, but we've been kind of picking and choosing which ones we're going to go. We've gone through five of them. We started with Psalm 122, the Psalm of Ascent. And Psalm 120, from the trouble coming to the Lord. Psalm 127, from Mother's Day. And Psalm 124, had it not been the Lord who was on our side, we'd have been sunk. And last week, Psalm 121, 
And this week we're at Psalm 125. Like Psalm 121, this is a mountain psalm, which I'm calling it. Look at how Psalm 121 begins. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains from where shall my help come? Jerusalem was in the mountains. The people, if they worship, would walk up to Jerusalem. And as they walked up, certainly their eyes would look to the mountains. Naturally, they'd ask the question, where does my help come from? Because they're going to the tabernacle of the Lord in Jerusalem. And the psalmist says, look beyond them and look to the Lord. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And the rest of the psalm tells how God is our help. Well, this week we return to the mountains in Psalm 125. They're mentioned in verse 1 and in verse 2. Listen to how the psalmist here uses the mountains to direct our attention to the Lord. Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forever. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, so that the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But as for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. My first point comes from verse 1. It's simply this. Those who trust in the Lord are secure. They are secure. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. And this verse describes the security of those who trust in the Lord as being compared to Mount Zion. Believers in the Lord are like this mountain. Now, Mount Zion refers to the mountain upon which Jerusalem rests. It doesn't, it doesn't refer today to modern sprawling suburbia of Jerusalem way out into all the different hills. No, this is this is just a, referring to a small piece of real estate upon which the, the temple was built, probably referring to the place where the temple was built in a small region to the south of it. It's the Jerusalem of, of Bible times. It's often called the, the city of David. It wasn't a big region, less than a mile long, maybe three quarters of a mile, 300 meters wide at its widest point. It's a pretty small little city on this little ridge. But essentially, Mount Zion is a large rock upon which the city is built. And as a large rock, it is firm and secure. The characteristic of Mount Zion that he points out here is its security. Mount Zion cannot be moved, verse 1 says, but abides forever. This rock isn't going anyplace. You can't move it been standing right where it has been for thousands of years. David conquered the city somewhere around 1000 B.C. Jesus walked the city, the turn of the millennium, and it's been there, still there today, some 3000 years after David conquered the city it was there before then, though, and it remained there until the end of time. And picture this, the security of Mount Zion is a picture of the security of a believer, one who trusts in the Lord now, notice again who exactly is secure as Mount Zion, this steady, immovable rock. It's those who trust in the Lord. So you say, who are those who are immovable? It's those who trust in the Lord. To trust in the Lord's meaning that you have placed your life into His hands. Meaning that you have pledged to walk in obedience to Him and not follow your own way. It means those who have come to lean not on their own understanding but rather sought to walk in his ways. The word trust is a good way to translate, if you will, the word believe. You know, too often in circles, people read the Bible and they, they just think belief is just this intellectual thing. And so God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And people just say, well, yeah, I, I believe that Jesus was the son of God. And kind of right there. But this word pistio means to trust. So let's read it like this. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever trusts in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Very many times when you read your New Testament, whatever says believe, you put trust there because that's what's involved in believing. It's not just a, an intellectual thing that you just say, here it goes, but it's a, it's a whole life thing that I've, I've entrusted myself to Jesus. And those who have entrusted themselves 
to Jesus and to the Lord are as Mount Zion. They are secure. They can rest secure. Isaiah 26, 3, the steadfast of mine, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Those who have trusted in the Lord will know and experience his care. Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. God is our rest. God is our, our trust. He's our refuge. He's our fortress. And when we place ourselves in his care, we then become like Mount Zion, immovable, steady as a rock. And we need not fear, even if, if there's trouble and unease all around us. Consider Psalm 46, from which Martin Luther wrote, A mighty fortress is our God. God is our, our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, and though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains quake in its swelling pride. But the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. There it is. Trusting and resting in the Lord gives us strength and security and peace and no need to fear. It steadies our lives. It gives us protection and so, like King David said in Psalm 21, verse 7, the king trusts in the Lord and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. You ever seen this at work? Psalm 125, verse 1, at work. I want to give you some Christian biography, if you will, just to reflect upon verse 1, to bring it to light. You remember Nebuchadnezzar and the image of gold that he made? And he commanded everyone in Babylon to bow down when the music played. There were three young men who didn't bow down. Kids, I know you, know you know their names. What are their names? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Everyone else, the music played, everyone else bowed down. And these three Jewish youths stood strong and tall and refused to bow down. They're brought before King Nebuchadnezzar himself, who was raging mad. And he said, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image I have set up? And give him a test. Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the, the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigger, and the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image I've made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Chadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said this. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And I trust you remember how it ends. Nebuchadnezzar was so mad, he commanded the fire to be heated seven times more than normal. And he ordered them to be cast in the furnace. But God protected them in the furnace, probably sending the pre-incarnate Christ to be right there as four People were with them. They came out. They didn't even smell like smoke. Now, here's my question. How were they able to stand firm like that? Because those who trust in the Lord is Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. They stood firm because they trusted in the Lord. Well, how about the Apostle Paul? You remember, remember his example and his evangelistic efforts. He would often start in the synagogue and the Jews would hear the message first. And then when they would come to some would believe, but then others would come to understand what it is that he was saying that Jesus is the Messiah and the implications of the law of God, and the implications about their life. And uh, they hated that, rejected it, kicked him out. Then he went to the Gentiles. That made them really mad. And then they'd often gather a mob and run him out of town. Well, it took place in Sydney and Antioch and in Iconium and Derby and Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And Paul even said later that um, I labored more than all the apostles and yet not I, but the grace of God within me. And God was just moving and helping him and keeping him firm and steady. And when he arrived in Corinth, it was much the same. He entered the synagogue, preached to the Jews. And when they heard the message and rejected it, he turned to the Gentiles. And I'm sure that he was on the verge of leaving again. But the Lord appeared to Paul in a vision by night. And listen to what God said. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. So what did Paul do? 
He stayed there for 18 months teaching the word of God among them. And I'm sure that he faced much resistance in those days, but he stood firm. And how was he able to stand firm? Because those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. How about another example from church history? John and Betty Stam. I love these people. I've read their biography. They're missionaries to China in the 1930s. The Chinese Civil War was being fought during those days. At one point, John and Betty were captured by the, the communist Chinese soldiers who happened to be invading the place where they had been ministering. They took all their money and demanded a ransom from their sending agency. And here's what John wrote to China Inland Mission. And notice his steadiness, his firm resolve. He says, Dear Brethren, my wife, baby, and myself are today in the hands of the communists in the city of Singta. Their demand is $20,000 for our release. All our possessions and stores are in their hands, but we praise God for peace in our hearts and for a meal tonight. God grant you wisdom in what you do and us fortitude and courage and peace of heart. He is able and a wonderful friend in such a time. Things happened so quickly this morning. They were in the city just a few hours after the ever-persistent rumors really became alarming so that we could not prepare in time. We were just too late. The Lord bless and guide you and for us. May God be glorified, whether by life or by death. Two days later, they hid their three-month-old daughter, Helen Priscilla, in a sleeping bag just moments before being dragged out to a little hill outside of town. Here's what their biographer says. Those who witnessed the tragedy marveled as they testified the calmness with which both John and Betty faced the worst their misguided enemies could do. Theirs was the moral, spiritual triumph in that hour when the very forces of hell seemed to be let loose. Painfully bound with ropes and hands behind them, they passed down the street where, they, where he was known to many while the Reds shouted their ridicule and called the people to come and see their execution. And soon after, they were absent from the body in presence for the Lord. And through everything, John and Betty stood firm. And I love the story. At one point where John was asked, so, so where are you going? And he said, well, I'm not sure where they're going, but we are going to heaven. He knew full well that he was to be killed, beheaded with a sword. And how were John and Betty able to stand firm? Verse 1, those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Have you ever seen this work in person? Where some tragedy strikes and it's the one who trusts in the Lord, who's, who's level-headed and, and serving others when others are running around in panic. Or, or there's, there's some news that comes up and, and everyone's worried, but the one who trusts in the Lord is steady. Or some family crisis hits and the family calls upon the one who trusts the Lord knowing that he or she will certainly be able to help. Or some issue arises in the workplace and the workers turn to the one who trusts the Lord seeking his or her counsel and wisdom. Have you seen that happen? Just a testimony of one who uh, trusts in the Lord is just walks as a rock and people turn to those kind of people in crisis. And what's the solution to that? The solution, the reason, what's the, the, the foundation of that rather? To those who trust in the Lord of Mount Zion. And it's not only now that that works, but it's also forever. Right? which cannot be moved, but abides forever. And this is the sort of the promise that the Bible has for all who have placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a forever promise. God hasn't promised us to forgive our sin just in this life, and then we've got to pay for it in the life to come. Or He hasn't promised us to forgive our sin now, but maybe not later. No, no, no. Forever we can rest secure in the love of Christ. As Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We, we can rest sure in the love of Christ. There's no reason for a Christian to be insecure. I know people walk around with lots of insecurities, insecurity about their looks or insecurity about their, their, their wealth or insecurity about this or that or relationships. There's no reason for we who trust in the Lord to be insecure. We ought to be secure like Mount Zion. And there's the promise, if you trust in the Lord, you will be that way. And I think any insecurity comes about because of lack of faith. Let us trust in the Lord. And we have this eternal security in Him. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. There's the promise. Jesus got us, and He's not going to cast us out. We can stand firm like Mount Zion.
Well, let's move on to my second point. We've seen that those who trust in the Lord are secure. Secondly, we find that those who trust in the Lord are safe. We come back to the mountains again in verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forever. You know, every time I've traveled to Nepal, and I've made five trips there, and uh, hoping to go back again in November, probably India this time. I'm not sure if I'll, I'll touch feet in, in Nepal this time, but um, I've gone every time to where the children's home is in Bakunde, and uh even there before the land was purchased. We as a church family helped purchase that land, helped the major player to build that building. And I just got an email from uh, Siraj, who's kind of the, the leader of that whole um, children's home there. 50, 60 children. He talked about how the, the children are growing up and they're taller than he is. So that's, that's a wonderful thing. Just all these kids that start off small and just kind of growing and growing. And, and I've, I've loved that place when I've been there. And, and I just tell you, every time... I have been in Bakunde. I have thought of Psalm 125, verse 2. Because when you're standing there, and Bakunde is, is about an hour, hour 15 minutes outside of Kathmandu. It's on this road that comes down from Kathmandu in the mountains down to India. And it's just down. You go uphill this way and you go downhill this way where the children's home sits on the big road. And, and if, if you look to the north, you know what you see? Kids, what do you see when you look to the north? What do you see when you look to the north? No, you don't see Everest. Everest is a long ways away. Okay, what do you see when you look to the north? You're on the right idea. Mountains. You, you see mountains there. And, and, and if you look in the south, down the hill, what do you see? What do you see? Mountains. Good, 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 good. And if you, if you look to the, the west, what do you see? When you look up here, what do you see? Mountains. And if you look to the east, what do you see? Mountains. Is that right, Yvonne? Just like that. As the mountains surround Bakunde. So the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. And so likewise with Jerusalem, it is surrounded by mountains. I've already told you it sits in the mountains, but also Jerusalem is surrounded by mountains. And it's hard to get a sense of of what it looks like. So I grabbed something off the Internet to try to just help you a little bit about what's going on. So, Chuck, if you can cue up this video. And uh, FR did this for me. This is a picture of the city of David where Jerusalem was. And just kind of goes back and forth. Up there is kind of, that's where the, the temple area is right there. And coming back down here is the southern tip. Now you can see here, it's just going to go back and forth. You can see here the valley on this side. This is the Kidron Valley. And on this side here is the Tyropanean Valley. And on the back side here, which we never see, is the Valley of Hinnom. And so you can just see that there are mountains all around. But there's this dip in this valley. In there, And also you can see the, the walls and how difficult it would be to penetrate and to attack in Jerusalem. In fact, the only place really to attack is from the north where the, the mountains aren't, where you can kind of come on a, a level surface. And Jerusalem historically has always had some strong fortresses right there. So we can stop that if you want. Just it goes back and forth. You kind of get a, a sense of the topology of the ground all in all, Jerusalem is a very safe place before helicopters or before planes where you couldn't get, you gotta go, you gotta go up, you gotta, you down. First of all, you're spotted on the mountains when you're seen. And then when you come down, then you try to get up these different valleys. It's very difficult to, uh, conquer the city. In fact, even when David initially came to attack the city, the Jebusites were there and they mocked David. They thought themselves all safe and secure. Sit <laughs> David. You shall not come here, but the blind and the lame will turn you away. They thought this place is so impenetrable, the blind and lame turn you away, right? You're fighting with a guy who's blind, can't see, and the lame who can't walk. That's how easy Jerusalem is to protect. Well, of course, I think it was pride comes before destruction. I think their arrogance is the only thing that allowed the city to be overthrown by David's men because it was a safe place, protected nicely by valleys all around, walls that were built And those pilgrims who came to Jerusalem to worship simply needed to look around and see mountains, 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 and then apply that simile right here. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forever. How about about some illustrations? Think about Job. The Bible tells that Job was a righteous man. 
And the Lord boasted of this to Satan and said, Satan, there's no one like him on earth. Have you seen this man? He's a blameless, upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And Satan said, well, yeah, well, God, it's only because you have this hedge of protection around him. Think about what Satan says. Job 1, 9 through 11. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side, just like the mountains surround Jerusalem, haven't you surrounded Job, O Lord? You've blessed the work of his hands, his possessions have increased in, his, in, in the land, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to the face. So the Lord said, Satan, have at it. And he lost all of his possessions and all of his children. But the Lord surrounded Job and did not allow Satan to touch Job. Take everything else, but not Job. Because the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people. And He was protected there. And the Lord proved faithful. And Job proved faithful to the Lord. He proved steady as a rock. He proved steady as Mount Zion. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so there's another time when, when God says, Hey, look at Job. Look at how righteous he is. And, and Satan again says, No, no, no. Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he'll give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone, his flesh he'll curse you his face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power, only spare his life. And, and again, you see God protecting Job, protecting his life. Satan can only do as God permitted. So the Lord let Satan smite him with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. But Satan was not permitted to take his life. And again, Job proved faithful to the Lord. Through trials and difficulties and, and wavering a little bit. But eventually his patient endurance won out. And God restored his health and his fortunes. Gave Job some other children. And, and sure, Job faced some terrible affliction. But it was the Lord was there who was the hedge of protection around his life all the time. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. We are safe in God's hands. There's nothing that Satan can do to us, but that God allows. Perhaps you remember on the night when Jesus was to die, he said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. He has to demand permission to go at his chief disciple. But Jesus said this, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, that you and once you have turned again will strengthen your brothers. Permission had to be asked. Permission was granted. And there was some wavering in Peter. But why did he waver? He wasn't trusting the Lord. Had he trusted the Lord all the time, he would not have wavered. But he did, and God restored him. And God will protect us. In fact, that's the point of verse 3. If you look, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, so that the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. In other words, though the wicked would try to thwart the way of the righteous, though Satan would try to thwart the way of Job, Though Satan would try to thwart the way of Peter, though Satan would try to thwart the way of us, though other people, wicked people try to get us to join in. You remember in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, people do wickedness and evil, but they also give hearty approval to those who join in them. And isn't it sinners who entice sinners? Proverbs 1, verse 10, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Sinners are in the job of enticing and trying to help. And, the, and the, the wicked people will try to get righteous people to fall. They will set traps. They will watch. They will see. And they will try to get you to trap befall. Be and the, the issue here is that though the wicked try to thwart the way of the righteous, God surrounds His people and guides them and guards them and protects them from falling into wickedness. Bad company corrupts good morals. And God protects even in that. Because I just say this, there's a way of surrounding when you're surrounded with wickedness that can lead you into doing wickedness yourself. When everyone in your family is pulling you down, you can go down as well. When everyone in a college dorm is off doing wickedness, you can easily slide into that as well. When you're in classrooms and atheistic professors continue to say it's easy to kind of drift into those things. But the promise here is that the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous. The righteous won't put forth their hand to do wrong. Why? Because God surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. This is a lot like 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is a common to man. 
And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with that temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. In other words, that, that the temptations that come upon us, God is in control of those temptations. He's got a, a hedge. And it's not like any of those that come are too difficult for us. Because He is protecting us that we may be able to endure it. And how safe we are. When temptation comes our way, God is in control of that temptation. He will not bring more than we can bear. And all we need to do is trust the Lord and cry to Him for help and strength and deliverance. And walk in the righteous way as the safe way. How about another example from church history? Say, take Daniel. Like Joe, he was a righteous man. His enemies tried to bring him down. The scepter of wickedness was right there within the government trying to bring him down. And, and, and they sought to bring him down. They couldn't find any way. Because he was walking in the righteous way. The only way to bring him down was to bring him down with regard to the law of, of God. So they tricked the king into signing an injunction that no one could pray to any god or king except to any god or man except to the king for 30 days. Only pray to King Darius. He signed that not realizing the implications about Daniel who prayed every day, three times a day to the Lord his God. And he wrote in this injunction that if someone did pray to any other god or any other man except the king, he should be cast into the lion's den. And when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, he opened the door's face towards Jerusalem, he kneeled down, continued kneeling like he'd always done before, three times a day, praying, giving thanks before his God as he had been done previously. I just said, how easy it would have been for Daniel to have stopped praying. Just kind of think, well, for 30 days... You know, I can pray in my mind. I can just, whatever, pray on my bed when no one's looking. But he wasn't pompous or ostentatious. He, he just did what he always did in honoring the Lord and standing like a rock that, that never moved. And his government buddies caught him in the act of praying. And they knew he prayed. He took his lunch at home maybe and they knew that he prayed every lunchtime. I don't know when, but they found him out. They found him praying and, and the king realized he'd been tricked, tried to find some way out for the sake of Daniel. But there's no way out. So he's cast into the lion's den. And I, I trust you know what happened, that Daniel spent the whole night with the lions surrounded by the Lord, safe and sound. Here's Daniel's testimony. When the king arose to find out things fair with Daniel, he said this, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him and also towards you, O king. I have committed no crime. Shortly after that, Daniel was taken out of the lion's den. The king then gave orders and brought those men who maliciously accused Daniel. They cast them, their children, their wives into the lion's den. until, And before they had reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. So they were hungry, destroying all these people and their families because they were the wicked people. But Daniel was the righteous one who stood on his way and God protected him. And, and how did Daniel su survive? Well, verse 2, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth forever. God was surrounding Daniel because he trusted in the Lord. How about another example? Remember Peter? Acts chapter 12, Herod the king had just had James the brother of John put to death with a sword. Peter was in prison, presumably awaiting the same fate. I just read from Acts 12, verse 6. On the night when Herod was about to bring Peter forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly! And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and... Put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought it was just a vision. And when he passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from the hand of all the Jewish people um, and from all the Jewish people were expecting. They were expecting him to die. And God was surrounding him as the mountains surround Jerusalem. That's how he, he did that. It's not like Peter did that on his own strength. No. 
So mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. How about another example? Maybe from church history. And, and, and literally in this message, we could have many, many examples on each of these points about trusting the Lord, you stand firm, and about how God rescues in the midst of trouble. Um, I'm thinking of John Patton, missionary in the New Hebrides. There's an island group in the South Pacific, now Vanuatu. These islands were cannibals. And I know many of you know this story that before Patton arrived, as a missionary, John Williams, two missionaries, John Williams and James Harris, were killed and eaten by cannibals minutes after they'd gone on shore. They'd gone on shore, they'd try to have contact with them, and eaten right away. Killed and destroyed. And before Patton ever went to the New Hebrides, Mr. Dixon said to him, You will be eaten by cannibals! And you remember his response? He said, Well, Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day of my, in the great day, my resurrection body will raise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Great boldness, faith, trust. And he went to the islands and by God's grace he was protected. Protected from being eaten within minutes. Protected all the time. In fact, listen to his testimony. He said, Our continuous danger caused me now oftentimes to sleep with my clothes on that I might start at a moment's warning. My faithful dog, Clutha, would give a sharp bark and awake me. And God made them fear this precious creature who often used and often used her in saving our lives. My enemies seldom slackened by their hateful designs against my life. However calmed or baffled for the moment, the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous. He says, I spoke kindly to them. Says, a wild chief followed me around for four hours with his loaded musket. And though often directed at me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if I had not... If he had not been there, as if he had not been there, fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me until my allotted task was finished. I love that. We are immortal until God is done with us. Walk around boldly. Don't worry about what others will do to you. And looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands, right? Trusting in the Lord and felt immortal. And, uh, I'm sorry, until my ha- work was done. Trials and hairbreadth escapes strengthened my faith and seemed only to nerve me for more to follow. And they did tread swiftly upon each other's heels. In other words, he'd just escape a little bit and then he'd be another trouble, another trial, another trial. And, it, and, and if you know the story, John Patton lived to be an old man. When he was done with his ministry on the islands, he went back to Scotland and went around preaching and telling people the importance of missions and stirred up a missions movement there in Scotland. Through his endurance, many on the islands of the New Hebrides repented of their sin, came to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, how was John Patton's life spared? Has the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. Those who trust in the Lord are secure and they are safe. That's why I've entitled my message this morning, Safe and Secure. We can be safe and secure in the arms of God. So just picture these pilgrims now, okay? They're walking up to Jerusalem to worship. There's probably some reason why this is a theme that would help them. Probably because they were facing some wickedness back home where they were. And now they're coming up to be with the righteous people. Probably because there's some unsafety and insecurity there. But they're coming up to be a place that is safe and is secure. And then comes the prayer in verses 4 and 5. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. And to those who are upright in their hearts. But as for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. Verses 4 and 5, we see two paths. One's the path of the righteous. One's the path of the wicked. One is the safe and secure path. The other is the dangerous and defenseless path. God's hand of blessing will be on the righteous. His curse will be on the wicked. And though verse 4 is a prayer, really it is a promise. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. God will do good to those who are good. God will favor those who are upright in their hearts. Psalm 84, verse 11. No good thing does He withhold from those whose hearts are steadfastly His. 
Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Verse 4 is a prayer. It really is a promise. Verse 5 is a promise. But as for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, if you turn aside, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. And so really, the, 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 the contrast here comes in verse 1 and verse 5. In fact, one message I listened to this week outlined, it just said one through four is talking about those who trust in the Lord. And verse five talks about those who turn away from the Lord because it starts the same way. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion. But verse five, those who turn aside to the crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. There's eternal security promise for those who trust in the Lord. And destruction promise for those who turn away from the Lord. You know, it sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? When he told that story at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, he who hears the words of mine and acts on them. He who hears God's word and trusts in Christ. May be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. Yet it did not fall for it had been found on the rock. That God does good to those who are good. He protects those who are built on the rock who trust Him. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them, but rather, verse 5, turns aside to their crooked ways, would be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. And here's the question. I haven't forgotten what my point three is. Are you safe and secure? It's really, really where it comes down to you. Are, are you secure like Mount Zion? Are you safe like Jerusalem with the Lord surrounding you? It really comes down to are you, are you trusting the Lord? Are you building a house of trust like verses 1 through 4? Are you building a house of turning away? Please hear this warning. If you turn away from the ways of the Lord... You have no reason to expect the kindness of God to come upon you. Because, look at verse 5. For those who turn aside to their crooked ways, right? those who turn into sin and, and, and turn aside and walk in their sinful ways, the promise here isn't that God's going to grab you out of them and rescue them. The promise here isn't that God's still going to do good to you. God's still going to be kind to you. No, if you are one who's not trusting the Lord, but are trusting in your own crooked ways, what's going to happen? The Lord will lead you or them astray with the doers of iniquity. It's a little bit like, like Romans chapter 1. Though God revealed Himself to everybody, He's made Himself clearly seen in creation... Yet yeah, yeah, yeah. people thought themselves to be wise, rejected the Creator, and followed after their own ways. Remember what it says? God turned them over. He let them over. He let them go. He gave them over their lust. You want to follow your lust? God says, well, have at it. But those who trust in the Lord, I'm going to do good to them. And I'm going to cover them and ground them and, and surround them as the mountains surround Jerusalem. And, and just know that if you turn away from the Lord, ways of the Lord, He will let you slip. He will let you slumber if you're, if you're not one who trusts in the Lord and you'll face the consequences of your rebellion. So I just want to plead with all of you here this morning. And I'm not sure where all of you are. I've seen evidences of many of you are trusting in the Lord. May this message come as grace to you. But I just want to say what Isaiah 4, 26 verse 4 says, Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. He's the one that's stable. Well, I want to I close with uh, an illustration here. It's going to take a, a little bit of, of building here, okay? Now, some of you know this. Some of you don't know this. But um, Darcy's daughter is getting married soon. And um, Krista is her name. And she's marrying a man named Brandon. <laughs> I love his name. And uh, his last name. Who knows his last name? Darcy, you can't do that. What's his last name? What? Rust. Okay. And so Yvonne gave, um, gave this devotional recently. And, and this is going to be really hard. I, I think this is going to happen. Oh, yeah. yeah. If I maybe take a... Huh? No, no this will work. I got a rubber band. We're going to shellac these things and make them real nice. I'm rubber banding them because they're not done yet. Okay, we're going to put them on a, on, a nice, on a nice board. But there's the R 
Okay, if they fall down, girls, you can help me because it's pretty precarious there, right? And there's the R, and there's the U, right, for rust. And she gave this devotional, so for those of you who were at the, the devotional at her bridal shower or whatever it was, then you know all about this. I think I'm just showing you off the genius of my wife who, who came up with this little devotional, right? And there's the, the S, and we're going to sloops. We're going to slide this over. Bear with me. It's going to work. I hope. If it doesn't work, that's okay. I'm not shooting anything in the ceiling or anything like that. So, inside joke for those who've been in Rock Valley Bible Church for some years. All right, rust. Right? And one of the things that Avon said um, to Krista says, you know what? Your, your name is soon to be changed. Soon you're not going to be Krista Robine. You are going to be Krista Rust. But one of the things that you always need to remember about your name is what makes your name important is Jesus. Right? You catching this? I learned to spell in the electric company, right? When they said, uh, rust, everyone. Rust. 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 Trust. Is that, is that neat? I think my wife is a, is a genius there, but... But this is, this is Krista's life. We're going to do these right, and hopefully it'll be in her house kind of forever that she'll remember, okay, this is my new name, it's Rust, but I, I really need to remember that the most key aspect to my name is what comes before my name is Jesus, and he is my trust. And I just, your name isn't Rust, okay? Your last name doesn't work like Brandon doesn't work, okay? But... All right, thank you, thank you. But all of us have that need to put the cross before our name and to trust in the Lord. And the benefits of that is that we will stand firm and secure. And may that help us to worship Him and enjoy our fellowship together. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I I do pray now for those who have not placed their trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. I pray, O Lord, right now that You would open hearts and open minds, God, to see the reality of Jesus and how glorious He is. Lord, that that You would show and expose a sin and where it is going. That You would grant repentance that those who haven't trusted in Christ would turn and say, I I need help. I, I, I... need some place to turn, and may they turn to Jesus. And Father, for those of us who are trusting in Christ, I pray that you would strengthen that trust. I pray that Psalm 125 would be true of us. God, that it would, would sink deep into our hearts of your care for us, that, that if we trust you, we can be secure in you. And that, that if we trust you, we will be surrounded by you and your grace. So, Father, help us and strengthen us in these days to live lives worthy of the calling with which we have been called. God, you you have given us so many riches, so much help. May we just turn to you and continue to trust you with these things. And I pray as these songs of ascent are for our worship, Lord, I would pray that just this message of trust would help us as we prepare each week to come and sing your praise in this place and to... And to pray to you, to examine our lives, to be re-energized and refilled, God, with the need to to trust you in greater ways. So I pray you would help. I pray even now after this service, our important fellowship time would be a path to that. God, build us up in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.